Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and confusing events in Israeli history. All that in just about 20 minutes. Yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they are wrong. Intifada. What does this word mean and what does it evoke? For many Palestinians, they might hear the word intifada and associate it with words like resistance, freedom, revolution, and maybe even liberation. For many Israelis, they might hear the word intifada and think of fear, terrorism, and violence. If when you hear intifada, you think of intense and horrific bloodshed, suicide bombings, you're probably thinking about the second intifada in the early 21st century. Those were bloody, violent years that saw over 1,100 Israelis killed, the vast majority of them civilians and 8,000 wounded. The Palestinians saw over 4,900 deaths and over 8,500 wounded. But this episode is about the first intifada, which began in the late 80s and was very different from the second. Due to a multitude of factors, including the intensity of the violence of the Second Intifada, and also obviously the recency of it, I think most people tend to think of this time period when they hear the word Intifada. The way I see it, while the Second Intifada and the imagery it evokes is what many of us remember, it is actually the first Intifada that changed Israeli history forever. By the late 1980s, Israel had fought and won several major wars with its Arab neighbors and even made peace with Egypt. Things were looking pretty good. Israel controlled Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, which also contained a sizable population of Palestinian Arabs, as well as Gaza, which had a million-plus Palestinian residents. In many ways, things were looking relatively good. There were meeting points and moments of coexistence between the Palestinian and Israeli communities. Israelis would drive to the West Bank to buy spices from Palestinian shops. There were Palestinians who worked with Jewish Israelis, and Israelis might have thought all was good. But something was brewing. On December 8th, 1987, an Israeli truck driver caused a motor accident in the Gaza Strip in which four Palestinians were killed. Amongst many Palestinians, rumors spread like wildfire that this accident was a deliberate act on the part of the Israeli civilian because he happened to be related to a young Israeli who was just killed by Palestinians a few days prior. The funeral took place the day after the accident in the Jabalia refugee camp, and what started as a procession and event of mourning turned into mass demonstrations. Over the next 10 days, riots erupted throughout the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. This rioting turned into the Intifada. Intifada means shake off in Arabic. The metaphor the Palestinians used was a dog shaking off the water from its fur, like the way Palestinians were trying to shake off the Israelis. The Intifada turned into an international story that lasted for six years and ultimately ended with the Oslo Accords. It began as a grassroots movement, 
but devolved into much more as the Palestinian leadership, otherwise known as the PLO, tried to grab hold of the resistance and take lead. The Palestinians boycotted Israeli businesses and some utilized stone throwing and Molotov cocktails to assault Israeli citizens. In the end, many Palestinians and Israelis were killed. What we are interested in for this episode is two things. Firstly, why? What caused the Intifada? Why now? The Israelis took over Gaza and the West Bank 20 years earlier. Why did the Palestinians start rioting in 1987 and not 1967? The second thing is, how did this totally shift the Arab-Israeli or the Palestinian-Israeli relationships forever? Because it really did. Let's start with the first question. Sayyidu Saiba, a former president of Al-Quds University, explains the beginning of the Intifada in the clearest terms. No, it was not the fatal accident that caused the Intifada. Here's what Nusaiba says. No one starts a volcano. The conditions for the explosion simply build up. When it's time for eruption, the eruption happens with fury. So what were the conditions for the explosion? Well, Moshe Dayan, you know, the famous Israeli icon who you may remember with an eye patch and all, used to refer to the first years in the territories in the West Bank and Gaza after the 1967 Six-Day War as, quote, the enlightened occupation, meaning he recognized that the Israeli government was administering people who were not Israeli citizens until there could be a guarantee of peace, but all in all, they had it pretty good. Tens of thousands of Palestinians were employed in the part of Israel that was on the western side of the Green Line. Additionally, after the Six-Day War in 67, there were no Arab universities, but as Israel encouraged higher education in the land it controlled, seven Arab universities popped up. Education is great, and having more places of learning is important. I mean, I'm all for it. I was a high school principal for years. So yes, A plus for more education. But in this case, there were other unforeseen outcomes. The first is that the radical Islamist movements grew exponentially in this university setting. We'll get to this later when discussing Hamas. The second is that now the Palestinians were developing a middle-class, educated group of people who could not find work that was adequate or really commensurate with their education. And they were forced into what they felt were inferior employment opportunities in Israel, especially as the economy had tanked. Israeli historian Anita Shapira explains that this caused bitterness and resentment. Quote, The Palestinians learned to speak Hebrew, but their acquaintance with the Israelis bred hostility, pent-up rage, and hatred. With a greater nationalist intention, growing Islamism, and a really terrible and worsening economic situation, God Gilbar, University of Haifa professor, called this the double deprivation syndrome. And so, the Intifada was born, and the Israelis were about to fight a battle which they could never have imagined. What were these years like? What was the fighting like? If not suicide bombs, then what are the defining images of the First Intifada? The young Israeli nation became military legends, thwarting five Arab enemies in the War of Independence in 1948, thoroughly taking down the Egyptians, Syrians, and Jordanians in the Six-Day War of 1967, and then defending itself again on its holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, in 1973. Israel knew how to win wars. But how do you defeat teenagers 
who are throwing stones and Molotov cocktails dressed in street clothing. No matter how high-tech Israel was, battling in densely populated areas against teenagers was perhaps its hardest battle ever. Micha Goodman, one of my favorite Israeli writers, talks about how the reservists were often now in a position they never could have imagined. They were not handed weapons to guard the country's borders from a foreign invasion. Instead, he says, they received clubs to patrol civilian neighborhoods and found themselves chasing children who had scribbled graffiti or waved Palestinian flags. But clearly, the Intifada was much more violent than that. But these reservists were used to fighting, not policing. Daniel Gordis from Shalim College quotes the idea that many Israeli soldiers were, this is a quote, Yorim Vibochim. They were shooting and crying. It was a terrible place to be, with one Israeli soldier saying, 18-year-olds ask me if it is frightening to serve in the territories. I tell them, the greatest fear is of myself, what I would become, what I could be drawn into. It's a jungle with its own laws. This was a battle unlike any other. It was also during this intifada that the radical anti-Semitic group Hamas was born. Hamas's charter included references to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, you know that old anti-Semitic forgery which claimed Jews ran the world. Hamas's charter included lines like, the Jews founded the United Nations and the Security Council in order to rule over the world. Pretty wild. The ironic thing about Hamas, and this is really hard to understand, is that Hamas initially received support from Israel because Israel actually viewed the secular nationalism of the PLO as more dangerous than the religiosity of Hamas, which was initially, and this is important, initially focused on educating the Palestinian youth to focus more on Islam, charities, welfare, and health services. Obviously, this all changed pretty rapidly, and Hamas developed into one of the more sinister anti-Semitic terrorist groups in the last 30 years. But in Gaza, instead of PLO flags being raised, it was green flags of Hamas and Islam. This is major impact number one of the Intifada. Hamas became a legitimate rival to the PLO regarding who should lead the Palestinians. Major impact number two is that world opinion stopped viewing Israel as the David in the battle against the Arab countries, which were the Goliath. This is the power of media. TV screens across the globe were filled with images of young protesters facing off with heavily armed Israeli police. The demonstrators knew to alert journalists and photographers to scenes of protest. Now, with images of Israeli tanks and kids with stones, international media started portraying Israel as the Goliath and the Palestinians as the little David. Israel's international image started to tarnish, except for the Americans. In a strategic and diplomatic mess-up of epic proportions, PLO chairman Yasser Arafat made the decision to support Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein when he invaded Kuwait. If you don't know much about the Gulf War, make sure to look it up. But basically, the Americans who were fighting Iraq were not keen on Arafat's support of Hussein, and now the Palestinians lost some of the high ground that they had developed. It was not just world opinion that started to shift but fractures in the Jewish world started to deepen. American Jews, who are typically more progressive-minded than conservative, were now seeing images of Israeli soldiers fighting against Palestinians in street clothes and hearing that the defense minister, Yitzhak Rabin, ordered his soldiers to break the bones of Palestinian violent rioters. Now, according to Shapira, 
It is doubtful Rabin ever said this, but it is certainly the way Israeli troops understood his directives in response to the stone-throwing and Molotov cocktails. Israel was always good at winning wars, but winning a PR war during the Intifada was nearly impossible. Another lasting impact is that Israelis started feeling that the, quote, golden occupation or enlightened occupation was not tenable long-term. Micha Goodman points out how Israeli society had developed during this time. The secular right was wounded. In 1987, listen to these numbers, only 21% of Israelis favored the establishment of a Palestinian state. But by 2001, that number had ballooned to 57%. And Gordas writes that it might take years or decades, but for an increasing number of Israelis, there was now little doubt that Israel would have to leave most of the West Bank sooner or later. More Israelis than ever did not think they should be in the territories governing another people. Interestingly, public opinion in Israel would flip during the Second Intifada, which we'll discuss in just a few episodes. Another outcome of the First Intifada is that the PLO became a force to be reckoned with. Right or wrong, good or bad, after being expelled from Jordan in the early 70s and then Lebanon in the early 80s, the PLO was at a low point. But once the PLO took control over the Intifada, its image was greatly enhanced. Now media coverage depicted Palestinians as victims, not terrorists, and garnered international sympathy for their cause. This ended up pushing Yasser Arafat to present a more moderate-looking political program. In November 1988, Arafat decided to go against decades of PLO policy of seeking Israel's destruction and instead recognize Israel. Israeli leadership doubted Arafat's sincerity, seeing as the PLO continued to engage in violence. Defense Minister Rabin was deeply affected by the violence and conflict with the Palestinians. When he became Prime Minister, he entered the office with a clear goal in mind, to come to a peace agreement with the Palestinians. On June 23, 1992, he was elected by a significant majority as Prime Minister for his second go-around on the job. A year later, in September 1993, with the signing of the Oslo Accords, the First Intifada finally came to an end. Last thing I'll mention that was another outcome of the First Intifada that rarely gets mentioned is that King Hussein of Jordan finally relinquished his kingdom's right to the West Bank, which Israel won in 1967. Hussein was more and more troubled by the Islamization of the Palestinians and wanted to make sure Jordan was not part of this anymore. Hussein disengaged from the West Bank and wanted anything other than a spillover of the violence from the West Bank. Before Jordan left the West Bank and gave up any of its claims, some Palestinians hedged and did not give their full support to the PLO. But now that Jordan was gone, Palestinians in the West Bank invariably showed support for the PLO. In fact, in November of 1988, Arafat declared independence with Hussein recognizing the Palestinian state. Israel, the US, and the vast majority of the Western countries, however, did not recognize this and still do not. Regardless of Hussein's position on the Palestinians, his country's disengagement from the West Bank eventually led to the Israeli-Jordanian peace agreement in 1994. So, that's the story of the First Intifada. It is not the Second Intifada. Although many of you might have heard more about the Second Intifada, the First really set the stage and changed how Israel and Palestinians would interact for decades to come. It altered the process of peace, changed public opinion, 
and even changed internal opinions within Israel and Palestinian communities. Here are your five fast facts on the First Intifada. Number one, the First Intifada was a lot less violent than the Second Intifada, but no less impactful. Number two, the Intifada began as a grassroots movement, and only later did the PLO take over the organization and implementation. Number three, the First Intifada was a watershed moment in how the media presented Israel. By the end, Israel was presented as the Goliath rather than the David and the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Number four, the First Intifada created fractures within the Jewish community worldwide about how Israel should be responding to Palestinian violence. Number five, lastly, the First Intifada was the push for the King of Jordan to disengage from the West Bank, leading to Israeli-Jordanian peace. Those are the facts, but here is one enduring lesson as I see it. The battle for a good reputation can be harder than a military battle. The Intifada proved this to the world. Over the next few decades, the Israeli government and other Jewish institutions started spending significant money on the good name of Israel. Regardless of your political perspective, I see this as a tragedy. Not that the Israeli government and others spent millions of dollars on PR, but on the fact that they felt they had to. See, that's the thing about reputations. Once someone smears you, once you're pegged in a certain way, once the media covers something in a way that is not nuanced, you can feel like your back is against the wall and you can start behaving defensively. Since the first intifada, this is what Israel has felt like it's had to do. Let's learn our lesson here. Let's make sure to reveal the layers of the onion, the textures, the shades. Let's reclaim nuance. With that, thanks for listening to another episode of Unpacking Israeli History. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating if you enjoyed listening. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to talk Israeli history, shoot me an email at noam at unpacked.media. I'd love to hear from you. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be discussing Baruch Goldstein and the Cave of the Patriarchs Massacre. It's not easy to talk about, but that's what we're here to do. Unpack the tough things. See you there. This podcast comes from Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Our producer is Rachel Kastner. Research and writing by Avi Posen. Additional research and writing by Akiva Potok, Yitz Brilliant, Alicia Stein, Benjamin Elterman, Oren Pelig, and Ellie Lichstein. Edited by Robert Perra. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Larry and Andrea Gill.